On Wednesday nights, I'm going to begin a through the Bible study every Wednesday night. So if you don't have anywhere to go on a Wednesday night, you just come here. And I want to begin doing that again, kick that in, because we have a tremendous uh, outreach or ministry to your kids and your middle school and high schoolers that's taking place on Wednesday night. So on Wednesday night, you don't have to sign up. Well, you can sign up if you want, but it's just going to be ongoing. We're going, we're going to start the book of Exodus this Wednesday night. So we're in Genesis 18. So would you stand as we read Just a few verses in Genesis 18. I'll pray, and then we'll get into the Word together. Genesis chapter 18, continuing our series through this. We took a little break and did a couple other little segments, but we're back in Genesis this morning. So it says in verse 16 of Genesis 18, Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abram went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham still... shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abram still stood before the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray the things that I prepared, you break them fresh and feed us. We're hungry. Lord, we understand our need to be fed. We understand our need to hear the word. We understand our need not just to hear it, but to then obey the things that you've given to us in it. We want to grow in our faith and our love and our hope. We want to learn, Lord, we want to know the width and length and depth and height. We want to know your love that passes understanding. We want to be filled with all the fullness of God. We know your word is living and powerful. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear that we might walk, even as we're doing this difficult topic of judgment. Please, Lord, by your spirit, speak to our hearts. Bless this time in your word. We know you will. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as I was just praying, it's understandable that judgment resulting in, in punishment is not a popular topic. Would you say amen to that? Here's a quote from a guy named George Peters who in 1905 wrote a huge volume, three huge volumes called A Theocratic Kingdom. He wrote this. This is a terrible subject to contemplate. We would not dare to present the matter if God himself had not presented it. As he has revealed it, repeated it, give it prominence, it would be folly to ignore or deny or soften or spiritualize the plain meaning, unquote. Here comes the judge, and judgment is not a popular topic, it's not a fun topic. Making it even more difficult is the fact that God's standard of judgment gets down to the intents and motives of our hearts. So he's not looking outwardly, he's looking at our hearts, and he sees them perfectly. So I read in Hebrews chapter 4, as I was praying a little bit, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division and soul of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is the Bible, God's word. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open, notice, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Ecclesiastes, after that whole book of 12 chapters of the vanity of vanities, he says, Solomon writes this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is, all, is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Add to that, that we will each individually alone stand before God, whether a believer or an unbeliever. We will face judgment. Now, for the believer, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, back one, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So as a believer, our lives will, be, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for salvation, but how we've lived our lives in sanctification in glorifying God. So those things will be scrutinized at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now in Revelation, we get a pretty heavy little couple of verses. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. We don't have time to get into these passages, but there's a lot to it. But know this, we're each going to face a judgment. Now, we'll talk more about the judgment of our sin taken on Jesus on the cross for all the world. But as far as our lives matter, would you say amen to that? How we live matters. If it doesn't matter how we live, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If, it does, if sin doesn't matter, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And yet you're going, to hear, you're going to hear it more and more that it doesn't matter. It does matter. And thus this topic is pretty serious, pretty sobering, but so necessary because it's not just bad news. It's filled with the good news of the gospel. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian manifesto, made it very clear that God looks on the inner attitude of the heart, not on the outward appearance. And so in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 20, we get sort of bookends. Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, what's that saying to that audience? You've got to be kidding me. They're the most righteous that you could ever see. I mean, they look, they are, they're, the, they're the men, righteous. Jesus said, unless it exceeds that, you will by no means enter the kingdom. We need a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness, the seen righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, as Jesus went on to talk about this, he said this in Matthew 5, 21. These won't be up there. Let me just read them. I'll give you the other bookend in a minute. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, Jesus said, you've heard it said this, but let me give you how God sees it. So you've heard it was said of those, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of what? The judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, those aren't pretty words, but that's what Jesus said. He's getting down to the fact of what God sees when he sees sin. He sees our hearts. He sees the root of it. He talked about adultery. I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, because it's better that you're, in this, you're maimed in this, in this life than to be cast into hell. 
Now, these are not, these are G gentle Jesus, meek and mild. These are not meek and mild words. This is Jesus giving, here's how God sees sin. He talked about divorce. He talked about taking oaths. He said, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than this is of the evil one. The way that Jesus attaches these things are very, very sobering and very important. He says of retaliation, I tell you not to resist a person, but whoever sh slaps you on your right, turn the other cheek to him also. Now, how many of you like to do that? He said, concerning love, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for those. I mean, these are high things. But what it's giving us is the understanding of how God sees sin. So the bookend is this, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, you can't do it. I can't do it. But what we need to understand is the bad news about sin. So Jesus will judge the world. Matthew, uh, John 5, 22. The Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We read in Acts chapter 17 as Paul is on Mars Hill in Athens. He said, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a key. That's the door to the kingdom, repentance. Because he has appointed a day on which he, capital H, will judge the world in righteousness. How? By the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In Acts chapter 10, the same idea, Jesus is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He's the one that we are accountable to. He's the one that the world will be accountable to. So three things, we'll come back to this each as I go through these passages. I've got a lot of scripture for you this morning. First of all, he is a just judge. Here comes the judge. Let me say, he is a just judge. Secondly, he must judge. He must judge. But third... He would spare from judgment. Now, that's a wonderful three little tags there. That last one is so important to understand the gospel. He is a just judge. He must judge, but he would pardon. He would spare from judgment. So he is a just judge. So he says, look at verse 16 of chapter 18. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Now, in in the beginning of, Exodus, of Genesis 18, there were three men that arrived with Abraham. So that's in, in, in chapter 18, verse 2. Three men were standing by him. Then as we get to 18, 16, the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. Then look at verse 22 of 18. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But notice, Abraham still stood before what? The Lord. Now look at chapter 19 and verse 1. Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Three begin, two leave, one stays. So this is a theophany, I believe, of Jesus Christ to Abraham, the Lord. Abraham stands, still stood before the Lord and begins to make intercession. So, verse 17. And the Lord said, this is an interesting question. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? 
Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all, of the, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. What's he saying? The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That covenant was through his descendants, he would bring a great nation. Through his descendants, he would bring a savior. This, this incre- it's incredible, unconditional and unilateral promise, covenant that God made to Abraham. But listen, unilateral, unconditional. Abraham, this is my covenant with you. But that did not exempt Abraham from living righteously and justly. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No, because I promised him, I've covenanted with him, and he's got to tell his children, and he's got to tell his household. So it didn't exempt him from living righteously and justly before God, and we're not ever exempt. All the promises, it still means that God has a responsibility given to us as his peoples particularly. Judgment must begin at the house of God for us particularly, that we need to live our lives in the light of his justice, in the light of his righteousness, in the light of his holiness. And as you know, the scriptures are filled with exhortations to do that. It did not exempt him from his responsibilities to his wife, to his children, and to his household. He had to pass on these truths. It did not exempt him from his accountability to God. In fact, so much the more so. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. It won't be up there. And that servant who knew his master's will, this is Jesus speaking, and did not prepare himself to do according to his will. I like that. Because when we know the will of God, there's a prep, we've, we've got to think that through. Prepare himself to do his will shall be beaten with many stripes. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So as we are given more light, we're more accountable. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? You see, the the content of the question is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is a righteous in very nature God. He's righteous. He is a just judge in his actions. God must act consistent to his nature Therefore, his actions are always just. He's a just judge. He must judge. He would spare from judgment. Quote from Kent Hughes. Righteousness is an attribute of God's moral being, and because of that, all his actions are just. So righteousness is that which is right or morally right. It is right living. Justice is action taken To preserve or restore what is right. How? That might be through correction. It might be through punishment. Now, justice, a just judgment, is punishment equal to the crime. So when God in his law said, eye for eye, he was limiting it to being a punishment equal to the crime. You can't have two eyes. Now, that's how we operate. You got my one eye, I'm taking two of yours. 
That's not justice. So a just judgment is punishment equal to the crime. Right living will lead to the pursuit of justice. Right living will lead to the pursuit of justice, but the pursuit of justice demands right living. Right living is determined, listen carefully, right living, righteousness, is determined by the objective truth of God's revealed will. He is not hiding it. It's not secret. Right living is determined, listen, by the objective truth of God's revealed will. That's why Jesus said this in John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The objective truth of God's revealed will. So Jesus also said in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. That's why the lady of justice is blindfolded. Not according to appearance, but to scales that are just. Listen, God does not hide these things. The world would love it if they could get away with that. God does not hide these truths. They're in plain sight for anyone who really wants to know. So we read, and God has given us his word. His word is the objective truth of his revealed will. So we read in Psalm 19. Many of you are familiar with this, but I think it's important to read it. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. What does it do? Converts the soul. The test of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is his word. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judges of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired today than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Now let me ask you a question. Is God's word sweet to your taste? Do you desire God's word? Because when you are in God's word... I have no, I'm not worried about what's going to happen. You can read a lot of books and we need to be worried. But when you are in God's word and asking the Holy Spirit to be instructing you and teaching you, these are the things that are ours to know God's will, to know it clearly and objectively. Moreover, by them, notice, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. I was, um, there's a, a, a book, a study started in the book of Hebrews. We taught that a couple years ago. Hebrews is filled with warnings. That's the, really the outlining of the, chat of the book. There are warnings after warnings after warnings. God loves us. That's why he warns us. God loves us. That's why he reveals his will to us objectively. That we can look at it and understand exactly what he's saying. Psalm 119. You know it well. Your word I have hidden in my heart. What? That I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet. I like to look at this. It's a lamp to my feet. It shows me where I'm standing and a light to my path. It shows me where God wants me going. That's all through his word. 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine. That is what is right. For reproof, that is what is wrong. For correction, that's how to make what's wrong right. And for instruction in righteousness, that's how to keep what is right, right. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God will judge 
though he bears long with man's sinful disobedience to his will and his word. God warns and warned over and over again. No secret. He's not hiding that. God was constantly warning his own people, Israel and Judah. And it's interesting, as you look at some of these scriptures, I'll read some of them. God looks back to Sodom and Gomorrah many times, Old Testament and New Testament. So he said to, to his people, Israel, Judah, he said, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. To his own people now. But, that the, but the wicked turned from his way and lived. Turn, turn, he says, he pleads from your evil ways, for why should you die? Listen, O house of Israel. The Bible says that judgment is God's strange work. He's not wanting to do that. God warned cities and nations what he would do if they did not turn from their wicked ways. Ammon, Babylon, Damascus, Edom, no secret. God revealed it. He wasn't hiding it. Isaiah 13, 19, and Babylon will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Zephaniah 2, 9, Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah. Jesus warned about the end times, his second coming. By the way, are you, are you looking forward to his second coming? Absolutely. You talk about the judge, he's coming, but he's going to make all things right. You know, and I'm reading a lot about the kingdom. This is what I'm coming away with, at least in part. God is going to blow our minds when he starts correcting things. And we're going to be living in a kingdom that is going to absolutely blow our minds. And some people would lessen these things that God has in the Old Testament concerning the details of the kingdom. But listen, it's supernatural power of God who's promised to us a kingdom that shall never perish forever and ever. Kings and priests I, I'm thinking so much more and more. We are headed to a thing that is so absolutely out of this world, supernaturally going to be happening, what God's going to do. Are you looking for the second coming of Jesus? It's going to come with some horrible things. But the end of what God has promised through Abraham and David and the new covenant, the end of those things is a kingdom where the lion will lie down with the, with the bear. What is it, lion? The lamb, yeah, that's right. Maybe they, maybe they can't, I don't know. <laughs> the little child's going to play on the cobra's den. Righteousness is going to cover the world like the waters cover the sea. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. Now, this, is, this will blow your mind. This new Jerusalem, it's going to come, come down out of heaven. It's 1,500 miles either cubed or pyramid. Now, I will look this thing up. Do you know that the space station orbits around the earth? Guess how many miles up it is? 220. This new Jerusalem, whatever it's going to be, is going to be 1,500 miles high. Okay, I better not get off on a side note. So Jesus said, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, that's where we are. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, we'll get this next week, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Pointing to Sodom and Gomorrah. From Acts to Revelation, there's warning of coming judgment. It's not a secret. It's there. It's difficult to be considerate if you don't know, particularly if you don't know Jesus Christ, or you're playing around with sin in your life. So I want to exhort you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, 
It's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Peter said this, For if God did not spare the ancient world, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live what? Ungodly. So, as Abraham is listening, and should we hide this from Abraham, what we're going to do? The Lord said, I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household, verse 19, after him, that they should keep the way of the Lord to, be, to, to do righteousness and justice. So as Abraham would say to his children, did you see what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you know why? Do you know why? Because knowing the truth, they lived blasphemous, ungodly, and unrepentant lives. Now we're going to get into the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah next week. Knowing the truth, they lived in in sin-filled disobedience and rebellion against God. Knowing the truth, they lived arrogantly in the sight of God. Knowing the truth, they lived as though they would escape the judgment of God. And God put up with their sinful lifestyles for a long, long time, but not forever. Not forever. It says his coming is going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to take them by complete surprise. Peter said this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but the day of the Lord will come. Will come. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, it should break our hearts. We're not going out, man, you better get right. We're saying, as the Holy Spirit would plead, be reconciled to God. So when the judge comes, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. Now, Kent Hughes said this also. Nothing is more offensive to the unbelieving heart than the coming judgment. A common question. What about the person who has never heard of Jesus? Now, it's a legitimate question, but is often asked as a smokescreen to cover guilt, shame, fear, and anger by making God the problem, putting God on trial, charging God with wrong by characterizing him as unjust, and thus they must answer to them. Nothing could be further from the truth and nothing could be more fearful when someone is in that place. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I tell you, Jesus said, fear him. Who is that? God. God. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is not hiding this truth from anyone. The problem is the sinner does not want to see the truth about their sin in the light of a holy and just God. Jesus put it this way. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But 
He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done. No, he stood before God and he got it right. Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice, who suppress the truth and unright. In the Greek, that means they hold it down. They, they don't want it. They, they suppress it. How? In unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Shall we, shall we tell Abraham what we're about to do? God's made it very clear. Now, what's interesting to me and what's so important is the context of these two passages. Because when you go before the first one, in John chapter 3, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world that the world... To the world, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, seeing as not believed in the, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That prefaces men not wanting to come to the light. God has provided for all of it, but we must respond in repentance. Now, what about Romans? What precedes it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to what? Salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's the righteousness that's imputed to us through our faith. Our sins taken care of on the cross. God declaring us right before him. It's imputed to us, not by works of righteousness, but by his mercy he saved us. From how? Faith to faith. We live, as is written, the just shall live by faith. There is no greater love no greater truth, no greater gift, no better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Can I hear an amen? It is the answer to our problem. And God has provided his son for that. God has revealed both the bad news, condemnation, the wrath of God, and the good news, the righteousness of God, and salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. So it's a legitimate question. What about those who have not heard? But here, there's a legitimate answer also. Again, I have a lot of scripture here, so I hope you'll just read it, and maybe it'll, it'll be helping you to, again, appreciate the gospel. Appreciate what is ours, that we judgment has been passed already on our sin because we've received Christ. Now, if you haven't received Jesus, it's a different story. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus today. We're going to take communion, but before we take that, give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And in him, your sin was taken care of. On the cross, your sin was paid. On the cross, your judgment was taken by him for you personally. So, God will judge according to the light that a person has. And there are three lights. There's creation, there's conscience, and there's Christ. So Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we'll examine this passage in our next study. when We look at the sin of, of Sodom. Je Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you're inexcusable, man, whoever you are who judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, 
and doing the same that you will escape the judgment. In other words, we are all guilty sinners. I don't, want to, I don't know if you want to say amen to that or not. But the fact is, we may look at someone else, and it's interesting how worse uh, our sins are when someone else is doing it. But we can't do that. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, now we're talking about the Ten Commandments, all those things given to the Jews. When the Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have that specific thing, but by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having our law to themselves, who show the work of the law. Next one. Written in their hearts, and here it is, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now notice, in the day when God will judge, notice, the secrets of him by how? Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. It's available for everyone. But the whole idea here is that our conscience is a light. Where did this thing of right and wrong come for? In other words, if it comes from outside of us, that makes sense now. Because now we all understand, that's not right. If it was ours to determine, who are you to tell me what's right? Who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? I think that's right, so I'm going to go out and do that. But there's a higher law, a conscience, that's innate in all of us that understands there is a right and wrong and that we must answer for it. So there's number one, creation. Secondly, conscience. But then the third light is Christ. It's Christ. And people will be judged on the light that God's given to them. The light that they've had. So God has revealed both the bad news and good news. In the gospel, how? Mark 1.14. Jesus came in the Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's God's remedy for his judgment of sin. Acts chapter 17. Again, we look at this. Paul and Marcel, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. Romans chapter 2, 4. Or you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now let me ask you a question. When you came to Christ, was that a good deal? What drew you to Christ? The gospel... God's goodness, that he's going to, if you come to him and you understand the gospel and you confess your sins, you turn from them, you turn to him, his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering are what drew you to the place of salvation. Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? Does anyone earn it? Does anyone deserve it? That's the good news. There's no greater light. There's no better news than what God has built into his creation in in, in Declaring his glory through creation. So if someone's wondering about, is there a God? Look at creation. It shouts, there's a God. Now the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But God has said right here, without excuse, creation, conscience. And these are things that to keep in mind as you're talking to your family, you're talking to your friends. Where does right and wrong come from? Well, is it right to do this? Is it wrong to do that? Where does that come from? But ultimately, coming to Christ is the answer. And I believe that God will judge according to the light one house, but they're without excuse because there's creation. They're without excuse because there's conscience. And then there's Christ. He must judge. He is a just judge. He must judge. He must judge sin. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. 
Now, this word outcry against, it's used in the Bible of cries of oppression and brutal, being brutalized. This outcry against. It, it's, a, it's this moral and social corruption. Heinous stuff. It's arrogant disregard for basic human dignity and what's right and wrong. It's a disregard for that. So the outcry against, he says there, Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Notice, and because their sin is very grave, God must judge sin. There's only one remedy for our forgiveness, and that's the sin bearer. His name is Jesus. He said, I'm going to go down now and see. So they have this fact-finding mission. Now, does God know everything? Absolutely. Is he omniscient? Absolutely. He cannot learn anything. He's God. So let me go down. He's saying, let's go down and see. So what's going on here? Because God knows those things. But here's the beauty of the story and also the heart of God. God condescends to meet fallen humanity in order to make himself known. He condescends to meet fallen humanity to make himself known. The ultimate is when Jesus came, God himself. But here in this story, he's coming down, and it's, he's saying to him, he is long-suffering. God never judges rashly, impatiently, or vindictively. He is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering toward us, not only that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Are you not thankful for the long-suffering of God? If Jesus had returned five years ago, would you have been with him? Ten years ago? And you just start thinking, sort of, where would you be if Jesus had already been done? It's a good question. He is long-suffering. He never judges rashly, impatiently, or vindictively. He all, this is, I love this. God always measures judgment according to his mercy. He always measures judgment according to his mercy. So we read in James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. I'd say amen. We read in Exodus chapter 34, as Moses before the Lord. What's your name? Who are you? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. He is a merciful God. Nehemiah 9.31, nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. The only reason we stand is because God has been merciful. Look at this one. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. That God has not given us what we deserve. And Jesus is the mercy seat for all of our sins. He's our propitiation. That God always measures judgment according to his mercies. In fact, in Genesis 19, if you have your Bibles, just go a little bit next chapter. We'll get this next week. In Genesis 19, 16, and while he, that is Lot, lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. It's the mercies that he took him out of Sodom. 
Verse 19, Lot said, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. When we think of judgment, God always measures judgment according to his mercies. 1 Timothy 1, love this, Paul the Apostle. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You know, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I understand that. How about for you? It's a beautiful thing to understand more and more. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not even worthy, he said in another passage. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy. Now notice, that in me first, Jesus Christ must show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, if God can save me, he can save you. Because I hated Christians and all the things that Paul was going through. He looks back and says, thank you, God, for being merciful. Thank you for being compassionate. Thank you that even come and visit me on the road to Damascus, wherever he met you. It's in his mercies that we are not consumed. And here's the thing I'll close on. God will stop to listen and answer intercessory prayer. God will stop and listen when we pray. And I want to exhort each one of you, myself included, we must understand that this is powerful, life-changing, and interceding for people's souls. Who in your life right now, who in your family, who of your friends doesn't know Christ? Who is in danger of hellfire and eternal in eternity without Christ? You see, the most powerful thing we can do is what Abraham did. He still stood before the Lord and he prayed. He interceded. And God presses on Abraham the gravity of the situation, as he will with us too at times more than others. We begin to take to heart, who's he thinking about? I'll tell you who he's thinking about. He's thinking about Lot. Now, the thing is, Abraham had already delivered him one time. Here's the second mission. But he's doing this one in prayer, standing before God. And he would spare judgment. Shall not the judge do right? God does right when he judges. Thankfully, he's just. Thankfully, he must judge. But thankfully, he wants to spare judgment. And I believe Sometimes it's more mental than heartfelt that prayer is the deciding factor. That we are before God interceding for that loved one. Abraham still stood. He's look, God's looking for intercessors. He's choosing prayer. He's chosen prayer as a means by which he saves people. So Abraham said, okay, I'm not going anywhere until I pray. You know what, you know what held him there? His love. And that's what captures the gravity for each one of us. There are people that we know and love, and we realize they might be going to a Christless eternity. What shall we do? Begin by standing still with God and saying, Lord, would you save that person? Would you open their eyes? Now, I love these little thoughts. Abraham's intercession didn't take him more than a few minutes. So take heart. A few minutes, just stand before God. Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? For far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the place for their sakes. Now, if you know the story at all, you understand that Abraham goes into a countdown to judgment. There's 50. How about, okay, hold on, 45. Okay, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? He has this countdown that he's doing with God, which speaks many things to me about this whole process, this whole endeavor to intercede for other people. So he's appealing on the basis of God's justice. He's not questioning the Lord's right to judge. He's not questioning that. But he's saying the basis is he's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked or as the wicked. There are two different peoples. That's the, his pleading. So he's asking God, interesting, to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. In other words, hold it off. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Suppose there were, he says, Abraham, two times. Suppose there should be found there four times. How does God answer? I will spare the place for those one time. I'll not do it two times. I'll not destroy it three times. So as, as Abraham is continuing to go with this countdown, he's interceding humbly, not haughty. I'm dust and ashes. He's interceding personally, but not presumptuously. He says, take it upon myself to speak to you. This is a personal matter between me and God about this loved one. And same for you and me. So I said, yet again, suppose there should be 40. Another thing about intercession, keep repeating it. Some say, well, you should only ask God one time. No, 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 no. You ask him a thousand times if needed for that loved one. And you say it over and over again. Lord, 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 Lord. We, my wife and I pray most every morning, very briefly, but we pray for each one of our children. We bring them before God. Not long, but powerful. God hears it. God's listening. And repeat it. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry. Now, here's the interesting thing. His intercession is at times certain, but then it's uncertain. Sometimes he's bold, but then he's timid. Sometimes he's confident, but then he's afraid that God's, you know, he's worn out his welcome with God. Listen, that's never the case. Well, I, you, don't be angry with me, God, but let me ask you, how about 20? Okay, don't be angry with me. That's just a part of us understanding that we're standing in the presence of a holy, righteous God who is the judge of all the earth, and we're coming to him and we're pleading on the basis of Jesus Christ and his mercy. We're saying, Lord, what if there's 45? What if there's 40? Lord, what about my son? What about my daughter? What about my grandson? And say it over and over again and bring it because love keeps me there. And sometimes I feel confident, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel bold, sometimes I don't. But that doesn't matter to God. I'm coming to him with my prayers, my intercession, and saying, Lord, I'm standing here as best as I can. I'm saying, what about, what about, suppose, suppose, would you bring them to yourself, Lord? Now notice verse 33. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You know, it, it feels like rather abrupt. It's like God, I would picture it sometimes. God saying, are you done? Okay, I'm going. Are you done? It's not that at all. God has heard, and here's the fascinating thing, the powerful thing. God answered his prayer for Lot. He delivered him. We'll look at this next week. Now, he's going, he got only got to 10. Now, what if he had gotten down to one? God would have said, okay, I'll tell you what. If there's one, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take him by the hand, and I'm going to lead him out of that place. 
Because God will not judge the righteous with the wicked or judge the righteous as the wicked. That's the base of our salvation. That's the base of the rapture of the church. So I just say, in closing, God answers Abraham's intercession, so take heart and keep praying. Keep praying. Because as we'll see next week, judgment will come. Now, I know that my mom and dad prayed for me because she told me. I say, why would you let me live in your house how I was, what, and what I was doing? And why would you let that happen? I would never let that happen in my house. My mom told me because we, we knew you wouldn't listen to us, so we prayed for you. And God answered their prayer. In fact, I think they were totally surprised that God answered their prayer. <laughs> really? Now, how many people have you met said, really? <laughs> anyway, I've since learned that God is for me, not against me. I've since learned that Jesus himself is interceding for me, and not for me also, but also for those who I'm praying for. I've come to understand that God will join, he wants me to join with him in praying and interceding for people's souls. That's powerful. It's marked. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.